Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Omalort, Chicago history you never learned in school. Johnny Zinn, how are you? Hi there, Midwest and beyond. <laughs> I had a thought about Tylenol Murder's explanation point, the musical. Oh, yeah. Mm. One question. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Can Michael Shannon sing? <laughs> oh my God. I say no more. I am already an investor. I'm an angel investor already. And what about Tracy Letts? Like just the shivers that it would produce. They are the kind of actors that would be cast in this thing. They absolutely would be. Yeah. We are, we're on a ride crazier than cruising the streets of Chicago with bullhorns telling people not to take Tylenol. I do want to point out something I learned about Jane Byrne, Mayor Jane Byrne, that I did, that I forgot. But it's cool because I she gets a lot of shit. She was the mayor who stopped cops from patrolling gay bars. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah. For younger listeners, there was a time as recently as the 1980s when gay bars were illegal. My favorite photo of her from the archives, I'm sure you've seen it, is one where she's backstage at WGN. Back in the day, she was on some talk show or the news or something, and she's smoking a cigarette backstage with Bozo. <laughs> I'm not seeing it. It's pretty, yeah, you need to look it up. It's really funny. <laughs> I'll look that up. I'll put that in the show notes for everybody, too. When we last left the Tylenol murders, the CPD suspect surrendered after murdering the wrong man. From the Tribune, at his trial, Arnold testified he mistook Stanisha for Sinclair. Sinclair also testified. He confirmed he had supplied Arnold's name to the police. He also told jurors he had seen Arnold several times inside his bar afterwards, but did not on the night of the shooting. Tribune goes on to say, after four hours of jury deliberations, Arnold was convicted of murder on January 11th, 1984. He received 30 years in prison, but under sentencing laws at the time, he would be eligible for parole after serving the term. In a petition for clemency, he filed several years after his conviction. Arnold admitted he killed an innocent man 
that did him no harm. He apologized, but said, sorry, really doesn't cut it. Correct. Yeah, correct. You got that one right. Yeah, we got that one. And in the Tribune. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Which again, I'll put in the show notes. They talk at length to Stanisha's daughter and it's devastating. Here is where it gets more complicated than why Fox News fired Tucker. Which is a very good thing that happened this week, but keep on the story. Not going to grow, but yes. The task force eliminated him as a suspect because they could not identify any motive and he did not fit the profile. Please remember that last detail. Okay. However, renowned profiler Pierce Brooks disagreed. He was on the cutting edge of profiling out in LAPD, I believe. And so he, Chicago, he thought he did fit the profile. Yes. Okay, got it. The Chicago Police Department never ruled Arnold out as a suspect. And in fact, Philip Mannion, lead detective in the Stanisha case, told the Tribune that his lawyer approached him, Arnold's lawyer, after the conviction, announcing they would talk Tylenol murders. Mannion told the Tribune, and this is a quote, why wait until after the appeals are over? If you have information that could help, why would you wait until you're sure your other murder conviction won't get tossed? You wouldn't, unless you did it. Right. See the logic, but yeah. So if this was a Dick Wolf drama, that's where the show ends. Right. Not in our story. Acting on intuition, Manny, Ford, and Gildea, the, Ford and Gildea were the other two detectives. They advocated that Arnold attend a less restrictive prison so they could have access to him. So they want to get him in a lower security prison so they can work with him. Their request was denied because the FBI said he was not the guy. Gosh, this is just like such a tangle. I had no idea. <laughs> oh, wait. Just wait. <laughs> the FBI ruled him out as a suspect. And remember I said that there was a lot happening at the same time? So the FBI also had a suspect in mind. Okay. A different person? A different person. On October 6th, John Kopich, an employee of McNeil Pharmaceuticals, the lab that makes Tylenol. He sat and sorted mail when he found a note addressed to Johnson and Johnson. This note is handwritten in all capital letters. Okay. Already creepy, but yeah. (laughs) And it promised to stop the killings if the company would wire $1 million to a Chicago based bank account. At this point in time, It's less than a week after the murders. The place is crawling with police, FDA, and FBI agents who are just interrogating the employees. This being slightly above the mail sorter's pay grade, he handed it to a supervisor who gave it to campus security, and they were the people who looped in the FBI. Then they gave it back to the Illinois task force. So that's the chain of command. But technically, Coppage didn't. He followed the directive of not giving it to the FBI. He just gave it to a supervisor. Quickly, the task force found enough Easter eggs to determine the sender was Robert Richardson. 
you might be wondering, who is Robert Richard Finn? Just to say, I don't think we've heard his name before in this story, have we? No. Buckle up like you're in a police cruiser telling people on bullhorns not to take Tylenol. Actually, I don't think they had seatbelts back then either. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) Robert Richardson was somebody for whom until mid-September, he and his wife lived in Chicago. They actually lived in Lincoln Park, I want to say, on Surf. Oh, like Marshall. Yeah. Yeah. One of my coworkers lived by them. Richardson worked temp jobs, but he considered himself a writer. He was very proud. The Chicago Tribune published his essay in an op-ed section in the article or the op-ed was called Chicago Slice of Life, which were observations he made waiting for his wife at the bus stop at State and Madison. Okay. I might be a little judgy, but when I hear the word essay or article, I think of, I don't know, paragraphs. This reminded me of when I took dramatic criticism in college, we had to keep an observational journal. This reminded me of theater kid, theater school, college shit. Yeah. With this gem of one yellow sheriff's prisoner bus. Empty, turning left. But and I think you're going to love this one. I think this one I included because it's my favorite. Remember, the corner of State and Madison. He wrote, one well-dressed evangelist, bullhorn blasting, promises of salvation. Oh, what? Is that, that can't be the same one, can it? It is the same one. Oh, my it's God. the same one. Outside of Old Navy. Yes. You're going to hell. Yeah. You're going to hell because you smoke. You're going to hell because you're wearing gay pants or whatever. (laughs) Think. Yeah. For people who don't know, every Chicagoan, and I think anyone who's been in the downtown loop, knows about what we call the State Street Preacher. An institution of a man who stands on street corners and condemns everyone who passes by to hell. If you're a smoker, God don't let no cigarette smokers into heaven. If he thinks you're gay, God don't let no. Does he say gay or does he say other slurs? I feel like he says homosexuals. He, oh, yes. If God don't let no homosexuals into heaven. And so I I'm like, like, I also feel like I remember judging women's clothing for, be, for being inappropriate or slutty or whatever. I feel like that was another trope that happened. That was a trope. He judged everybody. And he also would go off on marijuana, but people yes, weren't yes, yes. smoking marijuana on the sidewalks in Chicago then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for that digression, listeners, but this man is a legend. I'll include a picture of him in the show notes. Somebody did a fabulous one where they turned his coat into a rainbow. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Also, just a word about the Tribune editorial board, because they're going through something. Last week, they wrote an editorial, and here's the headline. Here's how McDonald's is improving his burgers and buns. There's a lesson for Brandon Johnson. Okay. There's no way to run in Twitter. People like, you got to go be on the headline. The real gems are in the article. It involved melty cheese was one of the words. Oh, jeez. What has happened? Such a tribute. Oh my god. I don't know. Okay, back to Richardson. Because this essay provided zero clues in the investigation, but the picture did. How the task force figured out who it was, and by the 13th, the extortion letter came on the 6th. By the 13th, They were distributing pictures of him because in addition to extortion, he was a suspect. He would be, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what's going to happen when you write a letter saying you're the killer. (laughs) So this was still national news at this point in time. And a Kansas City cop watched Dan Rather talk about this letter with a picture. And he, according to the Tribune, leapt to his feet 
and said, I quote, God damn it, that's Jim Lewis. Oh, he knew him? Oh, did he know him? Before the news concluded, so before Dan Rather was done with his news, Barton called his FBI contacts and was headed to an undisclosed location. This part is where it gets complicated. The next day, Barton and two other cops were on a plane to Chicago, and each of them had two suitcases of evidence about John Lewis. So three cops, three detectives from Kansas City. So mm-hmm. like Chicago. Okay. Yeah. But not before, at the behest of the FBI, Chicago Police Superintendent Richard something really Polish, sure. B-R-Z-E-C-Z-E-K. Yeah. I'm not trying it. Yeah. He called the Kansas City Police Chief because the Kansas City Police Chief also had a beef with the FBI. <laughs> the Chicago police superintendent assures the Kansas City guy that the documents would only be turned over to the CPD. So the CPD, okay, yeah. A promise he promptly broke. Uh-huh. Here's a direct quote from the Tribune. Yeah, I did it. He said, chuckling at the memory 40 years later, Heron hated the FBI like somebody hates the devil. We now have the Kansas City police here. Wow. No. Yes. Oh. It just gets weirder. What now? (laughs) (laughs) This is from the Tribune. Lewis's life before the extortion letter however, is chronicled in more than 5,000 pages of court transcripts, parole documents, and psychological assessments maintained by the National Archives and Records Administration and obtained by the Tribune. Together, the records paint a portrait of a convicted con man whose life, at times, had been driven by vindictiveness, trauma, and a steadfast belief that he's always the smartest person in the room. I also feel like 2022 was the year of NARA. Was the year of what? NARA, National Archives and Records Administration. Okay. They're the people that were like, hey, Trump, we need these documents back. Oh, yeah. The archive. Yeah. Yeah. Send a tweet. Don't mess with the archivists. They also have archives going back all the way to the early 1900s. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. I used them as a reference in my Streeterville episode. We could do an entire episode on this guy's childhood. It was tragic. It mm. fits the profile. And we don't have time for that, but I'll put it in the show notes. All right. I, so yeah. He's some kind of sociopath by now. Yes. And I will stick to the relevant facts. His daughter had Down syndrome as well as a heart defect. And he loved his daughter. Everybody says he was an accountant or bookkeeper. And everybody said they bring her to work. He loved his daughter. However, when she was five, after her second heart surgery, she died when the stitches fell apart. Okay. The sutures were sold by a company called Proline which was trademarked by Tylenol's parent company, Johnson & Johnson. Weird. (laughs) He's also suspected of killing a man named Raymond West, then trying to forge his checks. Mm -hmm. They found a dismembered body, and then after the suspect agreed to a search of his car. According to the Tribune, some of the stuff is so complicated, it's just easier to quote other people's words for it. Yeah. <laughs> the next day, he agreed to let police search his 1969 AMC station wagon and his inoperable Ford Fairline. Records show that in one of the cars, authorities found 34 canceled checks belonging to West and a rope matching the one used to bind the dead man. 
in the other, they located a nylon rope with slip knots identical to the unusual ones tied in the rope around West's body and in the hoist mechanism. Is there, did, is there a reason he killed that dude? I don't think so. Okay. We don't know. Okay. He, yeah. And he was friends with him. If there was in there, I've read a lot of information and if there was something in there, it didn't strike me as notable. It wasn't looking good for him. Except the Kansas City cops fucked up and they didn't read him his Miranda rights. Okay. Oh, shit. Yeah. And all of the evidence gets tossed and the case is dismissed. Oh, shit. Yes. Then we have identity theft, which by today's standards are laughable, but he made $17,000 in fraudulent charges between May and June of 1981. And as I understand this, he had a mailbox that he would just put at different addresses and get credit cards. He would, take, then, he would take out credit cards? Yeah. New credit cards and just start charging them? Yeah. Okay. They performed a raid. And by the way, I saw pictures from the raid, and it's worth noting this guy is also totes a hoarder. Yeah, I was just going to say, I knew you were going to say a hoarder. Yeah. Really? Totes a hoarder. From the Tribune. Federal records show investigators also found two large loose-leaf binders that included instructions on how to commit various crimes, including disguising one's handwriting and committing travel agency fraud. Oops. The bind... <laughs> Keep in mind, travel agency fraud, I don't know what it means, but you'll... <laughs> Like, There's a weird little tie-in that comes in here later. Okay. The Tribune goes on to say the binders, which agents described as a crime manual, also featured 34 early training tasks, such as obtaining the license plate of everyone on the block, stealing 10 family Bibles, and renting cars with fake identification. They go on to say, one page in the manual was titled Never and listed several prohibited acts. Among them, never send handwritten letters, never associate with criminals or people who carry guns, never assume transactions will go undetected. Okay. <laughs> Good. Oh. oh, and they also found a book on poisonings. And a map to the victim's house. I did just look up travel agency fraud. (laughs) What does it say? It's very generic. Travel agency fraud broadly involves any scheme in which a travel agent or someone posing as a travel agent makes false or misleading claims. That is super broad. That is a lot of things. That's a very niche thing to write. If you're making a list of crimes. Travel agency fraud. Is that? I'm like, Alyssa, yes. Pay me and I will set up your vacation in Indonesia. But I just take your money and don't do it. So it's Craigslist now. (laughs) Exactly. Bam. After the search warrant, James and Leanne Lewis moved to Chicago. Because it was the 80s. You could just move. More from the Tribune. Records reviewed by the Tribune state that James Lewis' fingerprints were on several pages, including one explaining how much cyanide is needed to kill the average person. Today, Tylenol investigators still consider the prints a strong piece of circumstantial evidence against him. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, yeah. They moved to Chicago, and they renamed themselves Robert and Nancy Richardson. Jim gets a job but quickly gets fired. Leanne got a job working at Lakeside Travel Agency. Travel front. Come on, come through, Leanne. She's a bookkeeper there. And after two months, she could tell that the company was in financial duress. If my company's bank accounts are overdrawn, I don't need to be a bookkeeper to figure out that there's a financial issue. Yes. 
she received her final paycheck, which was $512. And also the same day, the company went out of business. Okay. Yep. So surprising no one, except for maybe Jim and Leanne, the check bounced. Oh, yeah. Jim filed a claim with the Illinois labor wage claim. A hearing was scheduled, but it didn't happen since he didn't work for the company. His case was dismissed. Oh, okay. And he gets into a scuffle with the company's owner, Frederick Miller McKay. And this guy is now Jim's sworn enemy. Ruh -roh. On September 4th, 1982, the couple left Chicago abruptly. They told people that they were going to visit Leanne's parents in Texas. And then under the aliases of Karen and William Wagner, the couple bought one-way tickets to New York City. Okay. <laughs> Leanne got a job. And Jim spent his days at the library reading newspapers. Which I guess is better than writing observations outside your wife's work, but. Yes, and spreading op-eds, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On October 1st, he read about the murders. That same day, he dropped the extortion letter, demanding the money be wired to McKay's accounts. Remember, his sworn enemy. Oh, who's McKay again? Oh, the dude that he... The boss, the travel agent boss. Travel agent boss, got it, yep. He was trying to frame the travel agent boss for the Tylenol murders. On October 2nd, he wrote a letter to Ronald Reagan. Okay. The authorities confirm that it was him because of the fingerprints. The task force considers this to be a viable lead. So while CPD focused on Arnold a task force person eliminated him as a suspect. So the CPD is still working on Arnold and the task force tells the media, no. From the Tribune, as state and federal investigators launched what was then the largest manhunt in U.S. history, they were almost entirely focused on Lewis, a 36-year-old Missouri man with an alleged history of vindictive and violent behavior. The chase was the start of a peculiar game of cat and mouse between Lewis and law enforcement that has lasted for decades and in many ways has come to define the case. It lasted for decades? For decades. Now, Lewis continued sending letters, this time to the Chicago Tribune, the Kansas City Star, and his wife's parents. Probably shouldn't. He switched to cursive now, just as an interesting little thing. It, still haven't figured out how to wear gloves, probably, but he's handling the letters. Right. And he would claim his innocence, and then he would rant about his enemies and comment on the case. And his main focus was writing to the Chicago Tribune. Within a week of the letter, Tylenol Ty. He was the state attorney general. He named the couple the prime suspects. Interesting. It was interesting. And they named them the prime suspects. And then the Chicago PD came out. We don't really have any suspects. They didn't want to get people's hopes up. The task force received a tip that the couple was in Manhattan. The FBI assigned 15-year veteran Tom Ellis from the Fugitive Squad to lead the effort and they set up a command post near Times Square. They had 150 FBI agents looking for the Lewises, up and down blocks, going into hotels, hospitals, and restaurants. How cute. <laughs> the middle of Manhattan. Oh my <laughs> this lasted for a week, and then they returned to their actual Manhattan office and reduced the team to a couple of dozens. And the Lewises elude law enforcement for weeks. From the Tribune, back in Chicago, investigators examined photographs taken from a cash station camera near the entrance of the drugstore where victim Paula Prince had bought a tainted Tylenol bottle. On mm -hmm. WBBM Channel 2, 
Walter Jacobson broke the story that one of the images showed a bearded man seeming to look at the pretty blonde flight attendant while she shopped. When asked about the man's likeness to Lewis, <clears throat> Foner told reporters at the time it was unclear whether he was Lewis. Sources recently told the Tribune the man in the photo was quickly eliminated from suspicion after he came forward and denied he was the killer, saying his wife had sent him to the store to buy toothpaste. But to this day, some people continue to perpetuate the myth that Lewis appears in the infamous image. Yeah. What I found really interesting and why I'm including that, because first of all, the article that I'm using was written in 2022. There are people for 40 years that still perpetuate the myth that Lewis was in this picture. It's shades of the Sandy Hook denialism. And I really just thank God Alex Jones was not on the air in 1982. It's just people really just wanting to have a neat and tidy answer to it. That proves that we're done. Yeah. 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 And one of the things that Alex Jones is notorious for, and he's actually being sued for it right now, is after there's a mass shooting, he will trust 4chan for identifying killers. And then shows their pictures on camera. It's a terrible person. He's a terrible person. Yeah. Yeah. But he's getting sued for it. So that's good. Yes. In a big way. Meanwhile, the task force is getting 500 tips a day. And people are claiming to have seen him all over. Like people are like, oh, I saw him in Alaska. I saw him in Kansas. Because remember, in 1982, you didn't need an ID to fly. Important Specifically. On October 27th was when he sent his first letter to the Tribune, and it had a New York postmark. A few days later, Tylenol Ty lost his reelection. Okay. Lewis sends a letter to Leanne's parents, and they work with law enforcement. These people are snitching on their son-in-law. Her dad wired them $140, and cameras show him picking up the money on November 21st. All right. They set him up. But then nothing happened. Oh. They have cameras showing him picking up the money. Okay. Now, they know that he's been reading the Tribune, so they know that he has access to the newspaper. They begin 24-hour surveillance on every newsstand in New York City that sold the Chicago Tribune. How can they not find it? <laughs> they then shift to libraries and they handed out wanted posters to all the librarians. And on December 13th at one o'clock, a librarian drops a dime. They got their guy. Oh my God, yes. A librarian cracked it. Yeah. Oh my God. 150 FBI agents? No. Librarian? Yes. yes. From the Tribune, within hours of his arrest, Lewis appeared before a federal magistrate in New York. He was ordered held in lieu of a $5 million bond on charges of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Avoid prosecution. Avoid prosecution and attempted extortion. He, again, refused to identify himself. So he initially refused to identify himself when the cops came to the library. The Tribune goes on to say, the next day, Leanne Lewis surrendered to the FBI agents in Chicago after arriving at O'Hare International Airport. Special Agent Jeff Hayes, now retired, said in an interview that she sobbed as she was booked and fingerprinted. Now, Drop the misdemeanor charges against Leanne. Okay. Lewis's arrest makes national news. Mm -hmm. And Tylenol Ty thinks this is the guy. And CPD chief does not. 40 years later, he told the Tribune that he sticks by his initial assessment. And the exact quote was, James Lewis is an asshole, but he's not the Tylenol killer. Oh. But they don't have, CPD didn't have some 
other mystery suspect that they were thinking about. They were still thinking about Arnold, the guy who killed the other guy. They still think it was Arnold. Okay. Yeah. They still think it was Arnold. December 28th, 1982, he makes his first court appearance. It's worth noting the only evidence they have is the extortion letter. Yeah. Yeah. Three months after the murders, the task force dwindled from 100 to about 12. And at this point, there are three suspects. Arnold. Yes. Lewis. Lewis. And now I'm going to tell you about the third man. Bozo. No, it's not Bozo. You <laughs> so want Bozo to be... <laughs> Someone's got to bring him down. Okay. Yes. The third one. The third one. The Tribune never gives his name because he was never formally charged. The task force investigated the third man after an informant said he claimed responsibility for the poisonings. The U.S. Secret Service had begun keeping tabs on him for years, records show, because he allegedly threatened the lives of presidents Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter. He had a history of mental instability and bore a grudge against the Jewel Grocery Store. What doesn't that produce section? Jeez. I forgot that was in there. <laughs> okay. He bore a grudge against the Jewel Grocery Store. Against the Jewel grocery chain, where two of the eight recovered tainted bottles were sold, according to a sealed affidavit obtained by the Tribune. Part of the reason I'm quoting this is because this is all just so absurd that you'd think I was just making it up. And his motivation is that he's pissed at Jewel. Apparently, <laughs> Jewel Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter. Sure. On October 29th, 1982, this is from the Tribune, search warrants of the room he rented in West Suburban Lombard revealed the man had hundreds of clear gelatin capsules in his possession and bottles marked poison. Because he said, like a villain in a Disney movie. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The Tribune goes, goes on to say, though no cyanide was recovered. Authorities spent several weeks searching for him before he turned himself in Los Angeles, where his landlord said he had moved earlier that month. He turned himself in. He turned himself in. Okay. Uh Members of the task force fly to California. The unnamed man waves extradition. When they go to retrieve him from his... Oh, no. (laughs) No. When they go to retrieve him from his cell, he is naked and his hands are covered. Okay, mental problems. Yeah. Yeah. They go and find him in his cell. He's naked and his hands are covered in shit. They get him on a plane. The plane to Chicago was turbulent and he ate too many peanuts. So he vomited. All right. He has some gastrointestinal issues. He's got a lot of issues. I just love, how do you eat so many peanuts that you throw up? I don't know what that connection is, but that is, that's some good journalism. He was released on December 2nd. They interviewed him three times, though. Prior to Lewis's trial, they extradited him to Missouri, where he faces six counts of mail fraud. He gets convicted on all six counts. And he offers to be an informant. Who is he going to talk about? <laughs> other people, maybe other people in the jail with him. Oh, okay. Three months later, he returns to Chicago for his extortion trial. On October 27, 1983, after under three hours of deliberations, the jury finds him guilty. Yeah. They had him on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're thinking, wow, isn't the story going to end here? No, no, it's not. God. God. Spoiler alert for anybody who, John, I'm just going to let you know. 
they ran DNA in 2023 on this case. Wow. Yeah. It's still an open case. I was just going to say, yeah, are you, you are getting there. It's, it is open, right? Yes. It's an open case. Was anybody, do we know where Lewis is now? Or is that coming up? That's coming up. In a February 1984 jailhouse interview, while he was awaiting sentencing, Lewis denied poisoning the Tylenol capsules. He expressed remorse over writing the letter and said he didn't anticipate it would be taken seriously or get that much attention. Oh, just yeah. to do. I was bored on a Tuesday. I'll just do this. I'll just do this federal crime. That's great. Yeah, mail fraud. I will regret sending that letter for the remainder of my life, he told the Tribune reporter back then, adding, I became an all-purpose monster to satisfy the demand for a public appearance of justice. He's saying that police made him a scapegoat. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Remember the power suit and red tie portion of the profile? Yes. It becomes relevant now. Lewis reached out to special agent Roy Lane Jr. The two men meet, and the first thing Lewis does is deny being the killer from the Tribune. But at the end of it, he goes, I think I can help you in the investigation. I'd like to see the case files and everything that you've done, Lane said. And I told him, I said, you know, this is going to be a hard sell, Jim. One minute, they think you're the Tylenol poisoner, and then you want me to put you on the investigation with us? Let me see what I can do. Lane said the authorities never gave Lewis the files, but the request set the stage for several meetings in late 1983. And they lasted about an hour or two. Their discussions weren't confrontational. Lane said that he wasn't a confrontational interviewer. And they took the cuffs off. They gave him anything that he wanted. And if he wanted to pop, they gave him pop. And Lane is quoted as saying, I think we even went to get him some McDonald's one time. Okay. While they're doing this, Lewis is providing elaborate scenarios about how the murders could have been executed. Okay. Including drawings. Wow. And the conversations end when the feds refuse immunity. Hmm. That's just such a cop move. Do you remember the exonerated? Yeah. It's hard to forget the the weirdest party I've ever been to in my life. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. But one thing I remember from Gary Geiger's story, he was one of the people from Illinois, was how the cops got him was to speculate about how he would have done it if he had done it. And then they use that as a confession. Why why would you speculate about how it could have been done? Because you want that attention. You're a person who needs that attention. Either you're a person who needs that attention. I think in Lewis's case, you're a person that needs that attention. You don't want to appear to be uncooperative. You trust the system. Listeners, don't take legal advice from me. But if you are ever brought in for questioning, call a lawyer and do not say a word. Yeah. Because it could go either way. It could be a cop thing or it could just be wanting to be involved in the case. Yeah. You want to be involved in the case. He's either right. He's either saying how taking them down a different road to cover up the road that he actually did or he's or a real possibility that he in his mind thinks he's helping by jumping on and solving the case which might be the might be what he's thinking if he was like let me see all the records when the tribune said in this quote from him i'd love to see the thing solved so people would stop blaming me interesting and according to the Tribune, he went on to say, they, the police, asked me to show how it might have been done, and I tried, as a good citizen, to help. He said it in a later interview. 
It was a speculative scenario. I could tell you how Julius Caesar was killed, but that does not mean I was the killer. Yeah, I'm 50-50 about all of that. Yeah. Now we get into the power suit, red tie, and gray hair. Special Agent Lane, he thinks that Lewis contacted him, according to the Tribune, quote, that's just what I normally wore, he said when he asked if he intentionally dressed that way for Lewis. It's a little coincidental. I think it was a combination of just me being there, and then I had some of the stuff that he liked. Okay. In 1984, at a sentencing hearing, they bring up the drawings and all the past crimes. And they ask for 20 years. Lewis is representing himself at his sentencing hearing. They don't have enough evidence to charge him. And they have never been able to place him in Chicago during the murders. So he is sentenced to 10 years for the extortion letter. In 1989, he's eligible for parole. And he goes up for parole. But the feds convince the parole board that he's a threat to society and he should just serve the full 20 years when he was sentenced to 10 and the commission what so they could never they never could place him in chicago during one of the murders okay yeah listen he could have come back on he took a bus to new york in september he could have come back on a bus and no one would know because it's like taking the cta back then and not there's not cameras on in every single place like there is now. And Russia didn't have their satellites focused on Arlington Heights. And in fact, the commission looks at the evidence and they determine that he did them. Basically, this commission finds him guilty, which from the Tribune, U.S. Appellate Court upheld the panel's conclusion even though the judges called the idea of the extortion letters serving as a confession, quote-unquote, suspect. In their 15-page decision, the justices wrote that they might not have reached the same conclusion as the parole board, but, quote, the record provides a rational basis for the commission's conclusion that Lewis is the Tylenol murder. Lewis remained in El Reno prison, where he used his artistic talents to paint landscapes in his free time. And now he has a booth at the Old Town Art Fair. Yes, totally. Now, Arnold was paroled in 1989. He was the Chicago guy. Lewis was released from prison in 1995. He moved to Boston with Leanne from the Tribune. Roy Lane retired from the FBI in 1996 after 26 years and took a job with U.S. Robotics. When he left the FBI, he was the supervisor of the agency's Chicago Public Corruption Squad and had overseen Operation Silver Shovel, the sting operation in which six city aldermen and a dozen other officials were convicted of taking bribes. City that works. I have to tell you, Almost every, somehow every story I read about Chicago history involves aldermen and bribes. Yeah, there's always some little, even if it's not the main thrust, it's, and meanwhile, while this was happening, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just funny. It's just like it always is there. So we're entering a new century. We have Pokemon, Law and Order SVU. Mambo number five, Dasani, and TiVo. We still have not solved the Tylenol murders. Lane said he never wondered why Lewis contacted him and not some government official. And an FBI profiler once opined that whoever was responsible would enjoy the attention and might assist law enforcement after things quieted down. The person would gravitate towards that gray-haired man wearing a blue suit and a red tie. That's why they think he's the killer. 
it's insane that they can't get more evidence. Oh my God, it's going on for so long and literally nothing. Wow. Yeah. I, I seriously thought, because I did not remember the end of it. I thought you were going to be like, and here's this dude who's in Juliet prison right now to this day. But no. No. And it still gets more complicated after this. Oh, jeez. I don't know. Getting closer to present day. Yeah. It's not like they didn't have the manpower on it. And I'm if it's one of those things, like, I, I don't feel like any of these three suspects did it. You don't feel that way. Yeah. I don't. Because there's not. I feel like Lewis would have tripped up at some point in time. Because he's arrogant and he would have tripped up. And I feel like Arnold, who killed the wrong man, was too stupid not to incriminate himself. Hmm. I guess what makes it, I think you said this last time, that what makes it so damn hard is that it's like this weird passive crime where there's not a moment of, there's a, the moment, the crime moment is somebody quickly slipping a bottle of pills onto a store shelf. So that would be without cameras and without security, without cell phone tracking. How do you, how could you ever find that moment? I don't think you could. The police knew that it was going to be difficult to find the person, but it was a really high profile case. And what are you going to do? Just being like, yeah, not much we can do here. Yeah. But but which is terrible because it's still like murder. It's still like a random murder. And I think about it, if the person's still out there and they got away with, did they just crime once? They did one crime and they thought they'd just be the best ever and never do it again? Yeah, because this is not recurred in this way. I mean, it, the most modern more modern thing it reminds me of is the anthrax when that was happening. Yes. But that was also pretty targeted, wasn't it? That was targeted. I think, and that, I feel like that was targeted to elected officials. Yeah. It was elected officials getting weird white powder. And I don't think anybody, like the Rajanishi poisoning but nobody died. There was a motive for it. Yeah, there was a clear motive. And which I lived in the Dallas during that time. I think I've told you this before. Heck no, I did not know that. During the poisoning of the salad bars, that's where we, yeah. You didn't tell me you grew up near a sex cult. <laughs> my, my dad and his best friend has actually visited that compound when they first came there. That's Same. crazy. I'm assuming you've seen Wild Wild Country. Yeah, yeah. I had to watch it because, I, yeah. I was watching it. I'm like, oh, this is a... They didn't know who I... They did a really good job in not knowing who to side with right away. But then after they were like, and then we put sedatives in their beer. I don't think I could get off the floor. I was like writhing. I'm like, what's happening to me? Yeah. What? The storytelling is good, right? Because for a minute you think it's, oh, there's some un unwelcoming rednecks here and that that was not the case yeah by the end when the fbi agents were like and then we came up and we just saw these people having sex i'm like okay but yeah it's a weird crime and it's one now you could i would like to think never get away with it seems like you couldn't no yeah there are so many safeguards mm -hmm. in place and you said that the little foil toppers happen because of this because of the time orders, right? Yes. Yeah. I think it couldn't happen. There's cameras everywhere. And people really underestimate how quality surveillance cameras are. It clearly put a lot of manpower and a lot of money into solving the crimes. And was it that they had enough of a suspect to make people feel comforted because i feel like if people knew 
for a little bit. I don't think 40 years later we'd be like, well, the Tylenol murder is still out there. But I feel like it would have prolonged hysteria longer if they didn't make, because then what happened was they got Lewis. The country probably was like, oh, they got Lewis. And then they forgot about it. Yeah, for sure. I liken it to the Las Vegas shooting. Like, when did that happen? 2017? Something like that, you know? But the FBI finally came out with a motive this year. And you're like, oh, I forgot about that one. Mm -hmm. It's different now because there seems like so much is happening on a daily basis. We forget that there was some QAnon guy who did a bomb outside of AT&T on Christmas Day 2020. So I think it's one of those just relying on people's short-term memories. For sure. And you wonder how much. I think you said that we're going to talk about Johnson to Johnson, but wonder how much the idea of people of this thing, stopping capitalism of people not going into drugstores to buy products. I just wondered too, if that made them like, okay, we have a guy who might've done it. Let's settle. Cause we need capitalism to continue and we need people to keep buying stuff. I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to. And I don't know if there was ever fear, if the fear, it doesn't seem like the fear ever spread past Tylenol. Cause that was the only thing that was poison. So people it, weren't stopping buying Bayer and everything else. There are a couple of things. I don't think it went beyond Tylenol cause it was clearly the Tylenol murders. And which means you could still buy whatever form of painkillers they had in the 1980s. But we also do still see the fear in the form of fentanyl candy at Halloween. Yeah. Which is, when you think about it, no drug dealer is going to get a seven-year-old addicted to drugs. They don't have money. (laughs) And police officers issue the warnings about the fentanyl. So we do see it in from time to time in other things, but it was really just maintained to Tylenol and to the Chicagoland area. Yeah. I feel like there's been very small cases of something. Do you remember the flight attendant? I don't know. This has been within the last 10 years that there was a screaming baby on the flight and the flight attendant put a sedative in the baby's apple juice. I do not. The baby would fall asleep. I'm pretty sure that's the story, but it's like very, it wasn't, it wasn't a mass way. It's small things. One of the things I talk about in my very first podcast episode, there was a period of time where servers and bartenders and chefs were just poisoning people in Chicago. Really? Yeah. So the whole thing, the whole podcast is called Mayday. The episode's called Mayday. We've got a Mickey Finn. And Mickey Finn was a bartender who would, you have to listen to the episode to find out the story about Mickey Finn. But years later, there were a bunch of servers and bartenders who got arrested in 1918 for poisoning bad tippers. Oh. And a few years before that, I can't remember the exact date, they were bringing in Father Mundelein for the Catholic Archdiocese. And I want to say it was a university club. One of those clubs had an anarchist as a chef. So he poisoned all of the soup and people started to get sick. Wow. But then it's also it's a targeting who to blame. I think one of the things More. is also, I think what's on settling about an open case like this is because it's random. And there's nobody to blame for it. Yeah. I have a feeling I don't pay attention to serial killer shit because it scares the shit out of me. But I feel like they usually have, there comes a point in time where the police know who they're looking at. They knew Bundy's work. There were MOs. And that's what makes it just unsettling is you don't know who. Maybe that is, if it's the kind of criminal that has that 
sort of obsessive compulsive personality, maybe that's an argument that it was Lewis because everything stopped when he went to jail. It also stopped when Arnold went to jail. Yeah. Either or. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's completely circumstantial still, but. It's still completely circumstantial. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. And it's just the guy who had the beef against Jewel was just too much for me. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today's episode or hit the subscribe button quicker than Jane Byrne pulled Tylenol off the shelves and leave a five-star review. Take it one step further and share with the people in your life. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.